topic of our endeavor this certain evening is attitudes towards practice. Now, an attitude may make a big difference in whatever we do. We can perform a certain chore or a task with an interested attitude, committed attitude, but we could also perform a task, let's say, with absolute disinterest and no commitment whatsoever. And the results then will obviously differ. Attitudes are at first difficult to see for oneself, but if one starts paying attention to them, then they do become obvious. Now, when we look at certain attitudes, then in a simplistic manner, in a simplified manner, we can speak of two general categories of attitudes, namely attitudes that are maybe not so helpful for intensive mindfulness practice and other help, other attitudes that clearly are helpful, clearly support our meditation practice. So, what we shall do is, first uh, we'll go through uh, some of uh, the most obvious, unwholesome or not so helpful uh, attitudes towards satna practice. And then, having uh, done uh, this, we'll go on uh, to look at a different, taking a different uh, angle towards one's own practice a different approach to one's own practice. Now, an attitude might by itself be influenced by a predominant mental state. The mental state could be a mental state such as greed. So, um, greed or attitudes certainly influenced by greed will then manifest as a goal-oriented attitude. So we're constantly thinking about the goal, about the realization of Nibbana. Is it going to happen during the next sitting? Or maybe tomorrow morning during the very first sitting? And, so, and then having had some you know, pleasant, you know, desirable experience during you know, one sitting, you know, then comes the next sitting, and certainly we hope that we hope we wish you know, that that same experience will arise again. And if it doesn't do that, then by all means we try to recreate the experience. And oftentimes, does this work or not? It doesn't. In most cases, it doesn't. And certainly then, it's certainly, no, another related aspect here is we have certainly some pleasant experience happening right now, and we know it's pleasant, we know it's desirable, and the mind does what? It holds on to it. There you go. 
and it can't get enough of it, and it wants to indulge in it, it wants to have a party. Now, this is not certainly the only uh, attitude certainly that certain, or category of certain attitudes certainly that exist, but we can say there are all certain attitudes that certain are clearly dominated or influenced by the mental factor of aversion, ill will, hatred. And certainly so when ill will is prominent, then it might manifest as an attitude, a very subtle attitude of trying to avoid all unpleasant experiences. So one is highly aversive to pains and aches and hardness and stiffness and difficult mental states like restlessness and so on and so forth. And one does everything to avoid these unpleasant experiences. So if need be, if during a sitting plenty of pains are there, one simply decides to end the sitting to get up and go for a cup of tea. And with this the problem is solved, it seems, but not really. Now, so trying to avoid, and I, I know, you know retreatants you know, who've you know, been aversive to pains and aches for years and years and years, and uh, have always certainly tried you know, to somehow or other navigate around certain you know, those pains or you know, difficult certain you know, mental states. But this is this really realistic? Is this taking a realistic you know, approach? Not really, because pains and aches, difficult physical sensations as well as difficult mental states, they're part of our human existence. We just can't deny them. We might as well start paying attention to them. And a somewhat certain related certain attitude is in the face of an intense pain or a rather overwhelming, difficult mental state, we might try to do everything to get rid of the unpleasant experience. So, in one way or another, we try to get away from the experience. So, with the pain, for instance, an easy thing to do would be to change your posture, move. There you go. Now, with a difficult mental state, it might not be that certainly easy. Well, you could open your eyes and simply get up and go and read a book. Now, Another somewhat related or clearly related aspect here is a certain, again, subtle resistance of difficult experiences. So one knows that there is this certain knee pain, and again it's suddenly coming up. Actually, the knee pain is there, is calling you, is inviting you to observe it, but you refuse the invitation. So you resist observing the knee pain. And 
And the next setting it's the same thing. The knee pain again is coming up and again you resist it. You do everything not to look at it, not to deal with it. Or if there's some difficult certain mental condition, a certain pattern that you know is difficult to deal with, it might be going very deep, then again the mind might be resisting it, resisting to take a closer look at it. So this is very common among uh, retreatants. And so, you know, during interviews, it becomes obvious. And so, you know, for, for instance, around the hindrances, you know, retreatants try to, you know, somewhere or other, you know, not really you know, face those. And when one sees this as a you know, meditation guide or a you know, teacher, one needs to remind you know, the retreatant or you know, you know, you know, gently ask, could it be that you resist this particular or a particular you know, experience? Now, there might be a certain attitude that certainly is governed by delusion or ignorance. And in this case, we practice with a confused attitude, not quite understanding what this practice is all about. So we, such a confused you know, attitude might be that we practice just to feel good, and that's it. Now, is, there, is this all to the Buddha's teachings? Obviously not. Now, the Buddha has certainly giving, has given teachings that he you know, has certainly summarized as liberating teachings or teachings of liberation. And so, in the end, we are engaged in these or applying these teachings to our practice. And so, so having a correct attitude and understanding of our attitude towards the practice and understanding towards or attitude towards practice and understanding of the practice then it's so much easier to do what needs to be done now other attitudes that are also not certainly very helpful are um, attitudes of you know, pushy attitudes, interfering with what is happening, manipulating one's experiences, controlling you know, what is arising. So allowing only pleasant experiences to come up and then making sure that nothing unpleasant comes up. And then there could also be, or it could also be that one's attitude is pretty ego-centered. So it's always about me, and certainly so me being the most important person in the world, and certainly then thinking about how great a meditator one is, and things like this, or. 
One might certainly be sitting there with eyes closed. From the outside, it looks like the perfect meditator. But um, one is planning one's practice. So, in a week from now, I must have gained the fourth insight knowledge. And then, let's say, 20 days from now, the experience or realization of Nibbana must be mine. Now, does it really happen this way? Not at all. Now, what would you say is certainly the mental factor that lies behind certainly this or these certain related attitudes? Greed is there. What's that? Ignorance is there. Yes, that's correct. Conceit is also there to some extent. And what about wrong view? Wrong view, holding the view of a self, in thinking highly of well, thinking highly of the self. That's then pride and conceit again. And so, some amount of wrong view is certainly involved here. Now, when it comes certainly to attitudes influenced by pride and conceit, we might find the following. Namely, you hear instructions on meditation and the mind goes, I know these instructions already. There is no need for me to listen to them. And uh, one might certainly think these instructions are so simple you know, that certainly they are an insult to one's certain intellect. Now, this is clearly um, pride and conceit at uh, work. Or, out of pride and conceit, one might feel superior you know, to other retreatants, or one might feel equal to other retreatants, or one might feel inferior you know, to other retreatants. None of those are really helpful. And what this kind of an attitude leads to is obviously competition. So comparing oneself all the time with others and certainly this then distracts the mind from the actual task, namely a mindful observation of what is actually happening. Now then we have a mental, the mental state or mental factor of skeptical doubt. Can you think of ways how skeptical doubt might influence our attitude towards practice? Have you experienced anything along this line? Yes, we can practice wholeheartedly. Like, you might think, I cannot do this. This practice is too difficult. Or, 
out of skeptical doubt, you might certainly then be hearing teachings on the or receiving teachings on teachings, and certainly then the mind is busy criticizing those certain teachings. Ah, are they really true? I don't really believe this, and so on and so forth. Or the target certainly then becomes your teacher. And so, and so, your teacher seems so restless, or maybe your teacher falls asleep during the evening sitting. <laughs> and so, and so then you might say, and then you might think, well, what's, uh, what is this? It's not much of an inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> now, also, uh, what uh, we might certainly uh, find here, attitudes uh, uh, influenced by uh, skeptical note, is uh, that one has little regard or esteem for the mindfulness meditation in general. So maybe uh, because one is familiar with other types of Fatna practice and certainly then in one's mind one puts it down and maybe thinks, oh, you know, Samatha meditation is much better you know, than this uh, Vipassana practice. Does this happen? Some people might feel like this. Now, there's certainly yet another mental state that might have a tremendous influence on our way of practice, on our attitude, and this is negligence, heedlessness, or in other words, wrongful mindfulness. And so, not properly understanding what mindfulness is all about, what diligence is all about, we practice, we take the practice lightly, we take our meditation practice lightly, and we practice in a sloppy, casual, easy-going, negligent manner. And thinking, well... Do I really have to observe this object certainly deeply? Do I really have to know all the details? Well, the next interview is still far away, so uh, I might as well you know, enjoy myself you know, thinking about something much more interesting. So that's yet another area, and then as the last one for now, but probably not the very last, or not the ultimate one, is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor might also very much influence our practice and our attitude towards sadhana practice. And then, rather than exerting effort, we are clearly having a lazy attitude towards sadhana practice. There's a certain unwillingness to exert effort the mind is 
sluggish. The mind is unprepared to do this work. There's a certain disinclination to exert oneself fully. Maybe some amount of exertion is there, but is only partial. One could give oneself much more to the practice. So rather than giving yourself 100%, you give maybe just 75%. So that's kind of in the mind holding back. And for oneself to check this very carefully, what's my attitude towards the practice? In what's my attitude in terms of well, either laziness or willingness to exert effort? Now. On the opposite side of the field of different attitudes that we could take towards practice, we have then the following aspects. For one thing, we could briefly reflect on the fact that we are engaged in a noble search. Ariya Pariyesana, as mentioned during the initial talk, the opening talk on Friday evening. So, just to recollect that one is not engaging in just some casual, meaningless activity, but rather a noble activity, a precious certain activity with far-reaching consequences. Now, we might also reflect on and become aware of this precious opportunity that we have here during this June retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barrie. And we might also reflect on the priceless Satna Dhamma. So, there are not too many meditation centers around, and there are probably only very few that match this center in terms of organization and smoothness of operations. As Satna Joseph Fatna pointed out Satna in an earlier Dhamma talk or reflection in May, the yogis here are sure for sure well supported what do you think? Well fed or poorly fed? <laughs> well fed, good Satna taken care of. Are you practicing in a dangerous environment or a secure environment? secure environment. So everything is at your disposal. Just imagine you even have laundry machines at your, uh, at your within your reach. So that's uh, quite certainly something and something to be appreciated. Now when it comes to a vintage car, you know, one of those antique cars, there's a certain 
certain price to it. Let's say if you take a 1920 vintage car, it might, if it's a rare model, it might sell around 20,000 US dollars. What about the Dhamma? Any price for the Dhamma? Can we maybe fix the tag at 500,000 or maybe 10 million? Uh, Jim? We can't. So, the Dhamma, to put it clearly, is priceless. It is beyond any kind of uh, price tag. And so, we have this precious opportunity to practice here at the Forest Refuge, and mm, it is a Dhamma that is priceless, and that is guiding us in our uh, practice. So, reflections like this then might help us to correct a bit our attitude or our attitudes towards practice if necessary. Now, you can think of yourself as an owner of a vintage car. Now, a vintage car, I've read, and I'm quoting, is commonly defined as a car built between the start of 1919 and the end of 1930, known as the vintage era. Now, famous certain models of, or models from that vintage era are for instance, the 1925 Flint car and the 1926 Bentley Speed Six Tour. And then we have apparently also a Ranger 4 Model A20 automobile. Now, imagine yourselves to be the owner of such a, a Flint car, 1925 Flint car. So, rather rare you know, these days. A flint car, if I'm not mistaken, produced, manufactured here in the US. Now, as an owner of a 1925 model flint car, you know, then you will treat this car in a careless manner or not. You will probably have a superb garage for it, maybe even heated, and then you might want to make sure that all parts are in place and in good working order. You might shine it up again and again, maybe once a day, and then as the proud owner of a vintage car, you might want to drive it slowly down an avenue. And in doing so, let's say it's a three or four lane avenue, in doing so, are you happily going to bump into the next car? Not. Obviously not. So you will take every precaution not to bump into other cars, other cars or motorcycles, bicycles, and then you will also take 
every precaution that certain other vehicles don't bump into your 1925 Flint model or Flint car. So since the car is so old and it's, since it's also so rare and pretty expensive, you really pay much attention to it and you really care for your car. You might be even dreaming about your vintage Schuttner car. Now, think of your meditation practice uh, in terms of the owner uh, or as an owner of a vintage car. Just like the owner of a vintage car will treat his own, his or her own car with greatest care and respect. Please also treat your own meditation practice, which dates to over 2,600 years ago. So much further back than 1925. So treat it with the greatest care and respect. You might also reflect in the context of the attitude towards certain practice that this mindfulness, certain meditation, as vouched by the Buddha, brings at least the seven following benefits, namely a purification of the mind and then the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, destruction of physical pain and mental distress, entering of the right path and the realization of Nibbana. And this is not certain, uh, a little, those are not little achievements. Now, many other benefits can be derived from uh, the mindfulness practice. Now, the other evening, in the context of the talk on qualities of mindfulness, the simile, the Buddha certain simile of the most beautiful girl of the land and the man, the poor man who had to carry uh, an, a bowl full of, or, or a bowl of oil brimful you know, through a big or large shutting crowd. So this example is a um, example or simile is perfect you know, to in terms of care and respect towards one's practice. Now, a similar simile is the one of passing over, walking over a narrow footbridge, a rope bridge, crossing a river with or with a river deep down below and certain with a really strong current so if you misstep just a little bit you might risk to fall into the gorge and certainly then plunge into the ice cold water and get certain uh, uh, moved away or pulled along. 
So just imagine yourselves having to cross such, such a bridge and in a mountainous country like Nepal, there are plenty of such bridges. And so if there's not much to hold on to, you want to pay very close attention to your next step and then the next step and again the next step. So each and every step has to be really secure. Now, the Buddha spoke of care and certain respect in connection with the nine ways of sharpening the controlling faculties. The controlling faculties are five in number, and certainly they are you know, the controlling faculty of faith, Sadindriya, the controlling faculty of effort, Viri Indriya, the controlling faculty of mindfulness, Sat Indriya, and certainly the controlling faculty of concentration, Samadindriya, and finally the controlling faculty of wisdom, Panya Indriya. And those five controlling faculties are important to bring the practice to fruition, to maturity. And it can, the balance of those you know, two pairs, namely effort and concentration, and so, you know, then faith and wisdom, is really important. But it doesn't always, it's not always too you know, easy to establish you know, that certain balance of you know, those pairs. And so, since at times it's not easy, the Visuddhi Magga uh, recommends or speaks of nine ways of sharpening the controlling faculties. And the second one of those is certain care and respect in Pali given as Tata Cha Sakecha Giriyaya Sampaditi, which means, and in that occupation, one makes sure of working carefully. Occupation here refers to the first uh, way of strengthening uh, those or sharpening uh, those controlling faculties. And the first uh, way of strengthening is to uh, pay particular attention uh, to the dissolution, the breaking up of uh, formations, which obviously uh, is an aspect of impermanence. So practical examples for you know, practicing with an attitude of care and certain respect are, or might be, you know, the following. That uh, we do pay particular attention to closing doors you know, slowly and uh, mindfully. Or we pay you know, careful attention you know, to uh, you know, the 
aspect of or activity of putting on new shoes or taking off foot new shoes or maybe in the morning dressing or washing our face whatever it might be or during the meals that we let's say eat the salad with particular attention now a negative example in this context, so an example for carelessness and disrespect towards practice, would be if a retreatant is served soup. There's hardly this hardly happens here at the center, so I'm just speaking in general, and then while eating. The soup, the soup gets splashed all over the table. It spills over the plate here and there, so that the people who then have to clean the table have a hard time rubbing the soup off. Now, there's certain professions who will need plenty of care and respect in their respective work. Can you think of some or such professions? A surgeon, yes, that's it. What was that, Danny? Dentist, yes, uh, there you go. So a surgeon or a dentist, they need to be really accurate and in their work. Or think of a brain surgeon, the slightest um, slipping off, and suddenly the brain surgeon might touch um, an area of the brain which is still intact and might, in a really bad certain case, uh, cause uh, partial paralysis or malfunctioning of a certain part of uh, the body. So at times, think of yourselves as, uh, as a surgeon or uh, as, well, you might not want to think of yourselves as a dentist, I suppose. <laughs> Now, this mindfulness meditation is about what? Polluting the mind more and more or purifying it more and more? Purifying it. There you go. And it is only when a relative sense of purity has been established in the mind that the realization of the Dhamma becomes Possible. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. Now, this being the case, it's just a really basic factor that cannot be denied. We might as well work on our attitude towards practice. Sorry. <coughs> and uh, our attitude around purity. We might as well work you know, towards establishing ever greater purity of our physical, verbal, 
and mental conduct. And rather than just ignoring this certain aspect and thinking lightly of it and, well, it doesn't really matter now. All I need to do is just to observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So that would be a bit too simplistic. So having mentioned now a few initial points that might already influence our attitude, let us go on and look at, at, at helpful attitudes towards practice. So we can say that all the unhelpful attitudes mentioned earlier on, so attitudes influenced by greed, by hatred, by delusion, by pride and conceit, wrong view, wrongful mindfulness, and certainly then laziness, and so on. Those, we want certainly the opposite of those. We, our attitudes need to be governed by wholesome states, by non-greed, by non-hatred, by non-delusion, by not being conceited, by not being opinionated about each and every tiny little thing. And so, practicing with an attitude of effort, a willingness to put in effort, as well as an attitude of faith, of at least initial trust and confidence in the practice. Now, we along or on top of these various or attitudes influenced by these wholesome mental states, we might further add that it's always good to practice with a calm and detached mind. So detached here stands for a balanced and equanimous mind, a mind that is neutral or objective about certain things. Then what helps a great deal to propel one's meditation is really to practice with an attitude of curiosity or taking a great interest in what is happening, really wanting to find out what is happening here, what is happening with my rising and falling, the latest, the very latest development, something new is there, and you want to find out what certainly this is, or latest development with regard to maybe a pain, or the very latest development with regard to some new mental phenomenon. So, rather than practicing with a somewhat disinterested attitude you want to you want to have the mind of a researcher someone who is really curious and that will move your practice ahead quite naturally once that interest is there then you will want to find out and thus you will pay attention to what is certainly happening now a person whose mind is quite curious will experience 
relatively little boredom. On the other hand, someone who doesn't have that much curiosity is likely to experience much more boredom. Now, at times it happens that suddenly we unnecessarily exclude certain experiences from our field of observation. We simply just don't pay attention to them. We don't want to pay attention to them or we're not interested, whatever it might, uh, might be. And that sudden attitude doesn't really work because you know, we're you know, neglecting a certain part of uh, our uh, experiences. So what works much better is really an allowing attitude. Whatever, or to allow whatever wants to come up in terms of prominent experiences, be those physical or mental, in the sitting, in the walking, during the general, general activities, just to allow them to unfold, even if they are somewhat unpleasant and not really to our liking. Now, if you practice with this kind of an allowing attitude, then sooner or later a pain is just another object of observation. A pain might even turn into a good friend of yours. Now, Living in a modern, highly industrialized society, we tend to uh, we tend to be achieve, or we need to you know be successful. We need to achieve new things, and we need to be good organizers. And with this, then comes a certain pushiness, and with this, certain might also come a certain sense of forcing things and making new things happen. And that just doesn't work either. And so, what certain works much better, far better, is to take a gentle approach towards certain one's meditation. If you work with a pushy attitude, trying to be in control of things, you will find very soon that your body will tense up and your mind will also tense and tense up. And so, in, in fact, your suffering will not increase rather than decreasing. So working with a gentle attitude towards whatever comes up um, is certainly the way to go. Now, when we do this practice, we also want to keep our mind free of concepts. So we want to practice with an attitude, a concept-free attitude, if you like to. So. Already from the start, we say, okay, let me not be influenced by any kind of concept. Let me rather observe what is actually going on here. And this will save you a lot of unnecessary trouble. 
The problem with concepts, Sydney, is they are mental constructs, and you just place those mental constructs on the experience, and suddenly then you know, the mental construct, the concept, will influence your experience, and you start suddenly you know, to see it in a somewhat uh, uh, lopsided certain manner. Now, it's easy for us as retreatants to develop concepts around certain meditation based on what we hear in Dhamma talks, based on you know, what we've you know, read maybe in books, or you know, based on what we've heard from you know, fellow you know, retreatants. And then we think, oh, you know, you know, if my practice, for my practice to be really good, and for my practice, for my teacher to appreciate uh, you know, my practice, and to know that I'm really good at yogi, my rising and falling should have this vibratory quality. And you know, within one sitting or two, your rising and falling has this vibratory quality. Congratulations <laughs> to a case of self-deceit. So, whenever you find you know, that the mind is into some concept, you know, then realize certainly this, label it, and certainly observe it in a you know, non-reactive manner, nor its nature, and then sooner or later the concept will fall away. And what you end up with will be just true reality, ultimate reality. Now, what also helps a lot in our meditation practice is certainly the, and which is an aspect of care and respect towards certain meditation, is this slowing down, slowing down of activities. Now, we might over time find out ourselves that when we do things really quickly we're actually missing so many details and since certain our task is to clearly know what is going on it follows that naturally that slowing down is the answer and as we slow down just a little bit, we find, oh, yet now I see many more details in you know, the walking meditation. I see you know, how one step, let's say one gliding movement, is not just one continuous movement, but rather you know, consists of, you know, or is a segmented movement, so consisting of you know, many you know, smaller you know, segments. Or one might uh, discover even several sensations within one single you know, gliding you know, movement. Or same thing also during the lowering placing of foot near the foot. Or, and then as one you know, slows down even further, one might certainly even see you know, some prominent sensation arising and then you know, changing you know, maybe a bit and then you know, passing away. 
So there is certainly this uh, maxim in the meditation practice, the slower you do your uh, activities, the more your practice will develop. Now, since slowing down is certainly really helpful to improve one's certain practice, I've tried to put together some reasons and some benefits of this slowing down. So among the reasons, definitely it supports the intensity of the practice. It very much helps a retreatant to come into the present moment and to be in the present moment. So when you do things quickly, then it's very easy to slip, for the mind to slip off into the future or into the past. But when you do things slowly, then it becomes much more obvious when you're not suddenly in the present moment. Then, obviously, this slowing down helps us to develop mindfulness, it helps to develop concentration, and based on these two, it also helps to develop wisdom. Now, we can one might object and say one might object to this business of slowing down and say this is artificial. No, it's just an artificial no, 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 thing that is being introduced in the practice. Not so. Not so because when you look at retreatants, especially those who practice for longer, who have practiced for a longer period of time, you will find that quite naturally, even without being told so, they do slow down. And so the slowing down is a natural outcome of the practice. One realizes, oh, I'm not seeing that clearly. So one slows down a bit. Then one sees a bit more. And again, after one one might find, oh, there's still some more details which I'm not seeing that clearly. And again, one might certainly then want to slow down a bit more. So what are some of the potential benefits? For one thing, slowing down helps to open up a microcosm of new experiences. If we were not to slow down, we would not have access certain to them, or it would be really difficult. Now, slowing down will, as we see things according to true reality, this then will help to rectify some of our misperceptions. We can further say that certainly this slowing down has, as probably its main benefit, the uh, arising of wisdom and the possibility to go deeper, to investigate or to probe you know, you know, more deeply. 
And then there are you know, the added benefits of making me less mistakes, less mistakes such as dropping cutlery you know, in the dining hall or you know, when getting up, forgetting, you know, or, or getting up and then the napkin drops to you know, the floor because one has forgotten to you know, pick up the napkin and fold it before you know, getting up. Or oh, it's less likely that one will be you know, slamming a door or doing something in an absent-minded manner. Now, the comparison here is to a movie. When you watch a movie at normal speed, you see different images there. It's an entire story that gets transmitted. And then you might think you're seeing reality. But then, if you decide to slow down the movie projector, no, no, slow it down enough, then you, you might find it's not one continuous movie, but rather many individual frames, one by one, that are passing one after another, are rising and passing uh, one after another. So the initial perception our initial understanding is one thing when we see a movie at normal speed and so, you know, what really happens when that movie gets uh, uh, slowed uh, down or shown in a, uh, at slow, slower speed uh, is another thing. The same thing applies to the meditation practice. Now, with this, allow me to conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk on attitudes and Satna by wishing. May we cherish and appreciate the preciousness of Satna, the opportunity that we have here. May we also cherish and certainly appreciate, hold in high esteem the teachings according to which we're practicing here. May we at times look at our own practice like the owner of a vintage car would care for his vintage, his or her vintage car, and make you know, may you know, this form, this attitude towards practice, you know, then lead us sooner or later you know, to the realization of uh, the noble fruits of the practice. And this is it for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.